Age of Plastic podcast, an environmental podcast by me, Andrea Fox, your average consumer, for you, someone who just wants to know what you can do to help the planet without freaking out. If you've just joined us, we chat to an eco-expert every single episode and share an eco-hack that you can take on board today. We've had loads of great guests in the past, from the head of Ren Skincare, Arno Messel, Hugo Taghom from Surface Against Sewage and the CEO of green energy company Good Energy, Juliet Davenport. What I'm basically saying is if you've just joined us, there's plenty to catch up on. We've been going for a full year now with episodes every two weeks. So if you've enjoyed an episode, by all means, leave a comment, review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other like-minded people find us. And if you've got a guest suggestion or an eco life hack to share with me, come say hi via my website, iamandreafox.co.uk or follow us on Instagram, Age of Plastic Podcast. All the links are wherever you are listening right now. On to today's guest. This guest has been doing things sustainably in the kitchen for 50 plus years, culminating in setting up one of just a handful of cookery schools looking at sustainability here in the UK. Rosalind Rathhouse is an experienced cook and founder of the Cookery School at Little Portland Street in London, which set up back in 2003. In our chat, I ask Rosalind, what's best, organic or local? how she teaches all of these labels to her students and find out how she came to set up and run a totally eco and totally plastic-free kitchen. Thank you for joining me on the Age of Plastic podcast. Um, We are here in your lovely offices of the Cookery School in London with all of the traffic bustling past um, to chat about your experience cooking and founding um, the school. So maybe we'll take it right back to the start. How did you get into cooking? Well, my mum was a great cook. I grew up with lovely food, eating seasonally and, of course, sustainably because that's all that we had yeah. when I was a child. That's going back good a few seven, years. Yes. Five, five or ten years, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> um, you've not only been um, a great cook all your life, you, you and set up the cookery school um, in 2003, but you also had your own food business, didn't you? Can you tell us a bit about Pie Maker? Yes. Um, I left teaching because I wanted to go into making food. <laughs> I had this romantic idea of English pies because we grew up, I grew up in South Africa, where we grew up, it was a Commonwealth country when I was a child. So everything was British. We had a British education system. Even the food sort of that we had, English teas, scones <laughs> and jam and cream and pies. And when I came to England, there were no delicious pies. The pies that were buttery and made with lovely fillings. And so I thought I'd set up a business doing just that. And you did really well did. with it. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was a good experience. So what drove you to set up the cookery school in 2003 then? Well, um, I'd always had this yearning to work in food. And I was still of the generation when things went wrong in the family... I could go back to teaching. So I would do food, someone would get very ill, I would be looking after them, I'd go back to teaching. And so it went. And it was during one of the stints of teaching, but I was doing, I built up a study skills practice at home at that at that point, Mm -hmm. because I'm a bit of a school phobic. I don't like the rules and regs in schools, (laughs) and they're very hidebound, a lot of time wasting. And I think schools have got to be very unusual to be great places to want to go to every day. Yeah. I think lots of children don't love going to school every day. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people look back and don't say, my school days were the happiest days of my life. 
Yeah. So I think I fall into that category. <laughs> really? And so I was doing a lot of study skills teaching, which was great. And I was teaching year off boy. And, well, a boy who needed to take a year off. And he needed to fill the time. And um, he didn't know what to do. So I sent him off to do a, a computing and typing course because that's really a thinking skill. It helps you in that you can plan things, you can move stuff around on your screen. Very easy way of writing. And then he said, now what am I going to do? And he was one of those boys, whatever you said was nah, nah, you know, that sort of thing. I said, what about learning to cook? And he said, oh, I'd love to. But there were only two or three cookery schools. So we phoned them all, and no one had a place for him. And I turned around and I said to him, Jake, if I had time, I would teach you how to cook. Famous last words. Because that night, my kids were home, and my husband, and at dinner, I told them about this conversation. They said, but you've always wanted to have a cookery school again. I'd had one in South Africa when we'd gone back there in the 60s. And um, before I knew it, we'd found the premises in Little Portland Street, and I set up there. Wow. And I was still teaching um, 40 children a week. It was a big practice that I had. It was literally Monday to Friday, a child in every hour, every every three quarters of an hour with the turnaround space in between. And I promised their parents that I would hold them and teach them until they no longer needed me. So at the end of the first year, I dropped down to 20. And then slowly, just as they left me, I, you know, did more and more to cookery school. But in the early days, I would do the odd weekend, come in the odd evenings, and other times other people taught here. Yeah. Um, Paul Young, the chocolatier, started here. Really? Yeah, Paul started after he left Marco Pierre White. Oh, my god! And sometimes we'd only have two people on a class, and I'd say, we'll just split whatever we make. (laughs) Didn't even cover costs, I don't think. Oh, gosh. Yeah. But it got so popular, you moved to a bigger space, didn't you? Yes, yes. Then the space downstairs became available, and we moved into that. And, yeah, and it's just grown. I didn't imagine that it would ever be a cookery school the size that it is now. So what kind of, how many people do you have through? Because you've got not only corporate, yeah. you train people in six weeks to go and work in professional yeah. kitchens. So there's a lot available. Yeah, I think between probably five and 7,000 people come through each year. Wow. So over the 16 years, a lot of people have come through it. That's amazing. You know, increasingly so. Mm. And from day one... Mm you've had this sustainable element. Absolutely. From day one, it was about good home cooking. Yeah. And um, my daughter, Catherine, had always been uh, very into um, sustainability. Um, From the time she was young, when she was at school, she used to encourage me to just buy the odd organic ingredient because she'd say, if everyone just buys a little, yeah. It becomes a movement, which it has. And this was a long time ago. This that was like a long time ago. Years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That Not was so a good 30 then. years ago. Mm. Yeah. And um, when we started cookery school, we, there were certain things that we always did. All our root vegetables have always been organic. Mm-hmm. Um, all the veggies, uh, fruit that's sprayed, you know, sort of lemons, oranges, the ones that they, you've got to be careful of, um, apples, pears, are always organic. Mm-hmm. There's certain things that... If we, especially in the early days, if we couldn't get them as an organic product, we didn't use them. Wow. Now was that we, quite difficult? It was difficult. been quite a few things. Oh, yeah. The leaders at that time were Waitrose. Oh, yes. We could get more from Waitrose than from anyone else. So expensive, though, isn't yeah, it, for lots but of people? Exactly. And in fact, 
even now, the organic side does cost us more, mm. but it's not reflected in our lessons. It really should be, but the market will only take a certain amount of, you know, and that's it. Yeah. But what I also feel is if people aren't using organic produce at home, if they come into cookery school and they eat a lovely piece of organic meat, and they can, and we tell them what the benefits of eating organic meat are. I think that in itself is an experience to say, rather buy a small piece of organic meat and enjoy it. Mm. That was our argument in the early days. Now, with all we know about how important it is to try and buy organic grass-fed meat and have a little. You, I know everyone is saying that meat is a real culprit mm. in um, methane and the rise in carbon dioxide. Mm. But you can't suddenly, if you've been eating meat your whole life, say, well, I'm not eating meat, that's it. Mm. Some people do make that choice, but a lot of people won't make that choice. The important thing is to eat a lot. It feels like a, a punishment, doesn't it? You exactly. don't want to punish people. No, no. But eat less of it. Mm. If you eat a high-quality bit of meat and it's delicious, then that is fine. Mm. And also you can do things like uh, shepherd's pies, bolognese, where you're using far less meat. Yes, exactly. Or pasties, a little bit of meat. Yeah. And you love a pastry. <laughs> love a pie. And then, and sausages. Mm. You know, there's so many things that you can eat yeah. that use a small amount of meat. So that, in fact, we do quite a lot of sausage making at cookery school. Oh, wow. It's such fun. I, I, I do need to get into that. I was, yeah. I've got a fancy cookery thing at home that's got a sausage-making yes. thing attached to it. I haven't used it yet. It's, it's still so in the box. Once you get it, once you get into <laughs> the hang of using it, it is such fun to make. I, can't, I mean, it's good, yeah. I can't yeah. wait to do that with the family. Yeah. You've always said sustainable learning is kind of the ethos of the school, mm. but you're, you describe it as not chefy. So you're not going to teach knife skills or anything? Well, we do teach knife skills because there's a demand for them. Mm. It's a silly demand, to be quite <laughs> honest, because we do them, mm -hmm. and we do them well. The reason that we do them is people associate cooking with being able to use a knife well, mm. which really is not right. Um, it's a fad. <laughs> it's come about because of all the television chefs that people watch working on television, and they think, if I can't chop like a chef, I can't cook like a chef. So they see that as being pivotal in their ability to cook, which it isn't. My mother couldn't chop like a chef, nor <laughs> could my grandmother, nor does Nigella Lawson. Yeah. And all of them make absolutely delicious food. Yeah, great cooks. So it isn't a prerequisite to being able to cook. It's a nice thing to do. It speeds you up a bit. Yeah. And it's a bit show-offy. Yes, if you've got friends around, yes. I'd love to do it just for that. Yeah. But you're right, it doesn't, it's no, still going to be the same stuff. It doesn't make any difference. So we do offer knife skills, um, and I can see a benefit to them. Yeah. But on the other hand, you don't have to do them. Mm -hmm. But everything we do is teaching making food mm -hmm. and cooking as simple and as accessible as we possibly can. Yeah. So that people leave us being enthused, saying, oh, that's so easy. I'm going to go away and try it at home. Yeah. And that's what cookery school is about. Yeah. You were talking about um, how you teach students how to make a soup. Yes. And you don't waste weeks and weeks on it. Oh, no, no. In fact, I think there's a lot of um, jargon around cooking that you don't really need. People become nervous about that as well. And even all the French stuff, you know, they're saying, I've done my mise en place. 
Yeah. Preparation, you've just prepared things. We're living in England. We're not living, you know, in a French restaurant where you have to use that sort of terminology. And you hear that on the television. It's rather like doctors. Cordon Bleu. Who, yeah, and doctors who baffle you with jargon. And really, anything can be explained to anyone really simply so you get a grasp of what you're trying to understand. Mm. If you are doing a course where you're learning to cook properly, not doing a day of, say, Italian cooking, mm -hmm. within eight classes, how to cook, say, from scratch, mm -hmm. we would devote a day to a different topic. So the first session would be on soups, say. Soups is actually the first thing we do because they're so easy. So you learn how to cut up veg correctly. There is a way of cutting up because um, it's not a knife skill, but if you cut a vegetable, you cut it in half, and you put the flat side on the board, it's never going to wriggle and you're not going to cut yourself. It's just safe. So we teach Good those tip. sort of things, yeah. yeah. But once you've learned how to cut up your veg, we then say every print, the principle you use for making a soup is the same in most soups. And seasoning is very important. We make people taste and taste because it's just not the technique of cooking. Mm. The difference is how it tastes. Yeah. And I love salt. <laughs> There's a thing about salt. Molden or Cornish? Uh, any of them. Any of them. <laughs> yes, yes, but real salt. And people, when they see us putting salt into things, go, oh, so much salt. My mum does that. She's, really? Yeah, she's very anti-olive oil and salt, my mother, in, oh, when it comes really? to cooking, yes. Why? I think she thinks it's unhealthy. I remember her having the Rosemary Connolly diet a lot as, yes. a, young, as a young child. Yeah. There was lots of half grapefruits for breakfast in our oh, house. Really? She's a great baker. I think she taught me to be a good baker. But I think becoming a good cook came yeah. to me later in life. Isn't that interesting? Because olive oil is so good for you. Yes, we were talking about this. Yes, on gut bacteria. It's fantastic. Mm. Olive oil, olives, for a multitude of reasons. Really great stuff to use. Yeah. And salt... You actually, your body needs a little salt. You can't just not have salt. Even sheep have to have salt licks, you know. Yeah, really. Yeah. Um, I think salt is magic <laughs> if it's used correctly. If you're using instant meals, they are laden with salt. That's yeah. unhealthy. Because otherwise they'll go off, won't they, on the shelf? And absolutely. And it's a good reason to be able to cook. Yeah. As soon as you cook at home, you're allowed, it used to be six grams, it's come down to five, uh, milli, uh, five grams of, su of salt a day. So mm -hmm. when we put five grams of salt into a teaspoon and you see how much it is, quite in a day you probably don't even use that much. Yeah. If it's a family of four, it's just over a tablespoon and sort of a, a yeah. third, um, you wouldn't use that. Yeah. So it gives you an idea of how little salt we really use in home cooking. Mm. And talking about home cooking as well, mm. well, you brought up Nigella. I work for Food Network mm. doing the talking in between the TV shows. There's so many TV shows about cooking at the moment. So why do you think we have lost the art of cooking? I think that TV shows are for people, they're entertainment for a start. Mm. Everyone loves watching Bake Off. Yes. Because of the entertainment value. Yeah. They're not learning to bake from that. <laughs> Having said that, whenever Bake Off is on, our baking classes soar in popularity. <laughs> so it's good for you. <laughs> yes, yes, that is good for us. But 
I think that people have lost the art of cooking because it's not, uh, firstly, it's not passed down through the generations, mm. and secondly, it's not taught in schools anymore at all. Really? There should be a subject just called cooking in schools. And I at I least made a Nutella pasty when I was at school, so I find mm. that really distressing that they're not yeah, doing but lessons anymore. I think it's more important than that. Mm. I think that it should be taught alongside reading, and writing, and arithmetic. Mm. I think cooking these days is as vital. I feel so strongly about it because it's the root cause of so many problems of the obesity, the illnesses that we have, are all yeah. related to the way we eat. And then, of course, it's this whole sustainability thing, the food waste, yes. the not understanding how things come packaged. They all are related. And if they taught cooking in schools, it would be such a good opportunity mm. to bring everything in under that umbrella. Completely. And even mindfulness. My husband calls it the zen of chopping. He's got quite a stressful mm. job, but he likes to come that. home and cook. I love that. Yeah, because you what can't think about anything else when no, you're chopping no, a vegetable no. and thinking about what to add next. And the other thing is family meals. Yes. If you've cooked, everyone sits down and eats together instead of eating mm. something in front of the television. Like you were saying at the start of this chat, when you talk to the family about... Yeah. About the cooking school, it mm. was over the dinner table yeah. after you just cooked them a meal. I love that. We used to do something for school every year mm -hmm. uh, for about six years, preparing them for university. It was a sink. It was a school that had sort of been a sink. It had become a beacon school, mm -hmm. and we would meet them before we did the course with them. They didn't even know how to use knives and forks. Oh. We used to have to talk about using the utensils and table etiquette because things. everyone sat in front of the television mm. eating their takeaway meal. Yeah, I feel like there's quite a lot of apps now for getting food delivered that I think are, yeah. again, just helping people to do that you. a bit more, which is a shame. You talked about um, making things simple and easy to talk about. Can you talk us through the cards you were just showing me that you use at the cooking school? Yes, those are... We've had some cards made with very lovely icons that say what they're about. Mm -hmm. Because if you want to understand sustainability, you need a limited sustainability vocabulary mm -hmm. and most people don't have it so what we've done is we've had these cards made that are just fun to use where we introduce people to terms like methane carbon dioxide carbon footprint and so on so that they understand greenhouse gases because yes. most people don't know what those are yet and yeah. they're too embarrassed to ask Yes, it's a term you hear and you think, oh, I kind of know what that means. That's right. But you couldn't actually explain That's right. it. So once they know it, and you, you can actually talk with, about those terms. Mm. Yeah. And it's uh, quite difficult, isn't it, when you think about food shopping? Um, there's lots of terms like you've just described. What would you recommend for people um, going to the supermarket? What are some of the things that you try and teach in the cookery school when it comes to going and buying produce? Firstly, try and buy it from England locally. Mm. Try and buy things that are accredited, like Red Tractor or some of the organic um, stuff that we just think it's good enough to be organic. Um, I bought something from a sustainable um, food delivery box and we ordered apples, not realising mm. then that they weren't in season at the start of summer, and they came from Peru. That's right. I didn't order those. I, I think have ordered them if I knew. I think it's the Peru. same box that I'm talking about when we've got... Yeah. <laughs> when, when we've got apples here, it's apple season. Yes. Why are we buying apples abroad? Yeah. You know, and if we are buying anything that's abroad from abroad, we try to bring it in from Europe. We don't actually go. We keep as close as we can mm -hmm. to England, and it's coming in by train, so it's slightly different. Mm -hmm. But 
we tell them, look for accreditations if you can, look for organic, look for local, look for red tractors, so that you actually are buying stuff that you know is decently produced and the people are fairly treated, mm. that are producing it and so on. Yeah. Do you have any kind of favourite seasonal recipes or, or favourite time of the year when it comes to eating seasonally? Well, I love summer. Do you? I do, yes, I do love winter. I love the fact now that squash are coming in, mm. truffles, mushrooms, oh, wild mushrooms. Mm. I think, you know, <laughs> the season of uh, yellow fruitfulness, <laughs> mellow fruitfulness, it really is that now. But I do have to say, after the winter, and when it's really bleak and you, in March you're not getting anything you're waiting for those first asparagus to come out at the beginning of May and something green and fresh to come out of the ground yes. when it all starts coming out in summer I do get excited with the berries and all the lovely the peas and the beans and all that sort of thing I got so excited seeing our tomato plants flowering yes, and thinking that's right. oh soon that's right. sun yeah. ripened tomatoes oh yes, gosh yes. my mouth's watering now yes. um, can you tell us a little bit about um, what SRA means because you're a it's a sustainable restaurant association they really work very well helping restaurants become sustainable Mm -hmm. we fall between two stools i'm always going on about that with them saying call the people that you deal with the food business Mm -hmm. not a restaurant or a pub or a canteen because we're a cookery school and i guess yeah that that encompasses everything cafes and that's right so it's we're sort of out on a limb a little with them (laughs) but we follow a lot of the principles that Mm -hmm. they suggest but we were doing it all long before the sustainable restaurant association was in existence but it's really nice for us Mm. to be accredited and to have it acknowledged that we are as sustainable as we are i think there are only a few cookery schools across the whole of the country that wow. actually have sustainability at their core. Mm. That would be Dalesford, mm-hmm. uh, Hugh Fernley Whitting Stall, yeah. um, and us. That's all I know of. There may be one or two others, but those are the main ones I know of. A great elite group, but it's a shame it's yeah. not wider, really. But the it? interesting thing is the other two that I've quoted are both in the countryside. We're in the most polluted part of England, of London, of England, I think, well, actually. Well, yeah, must be. And, yeah. and so we always think that to be so sustainable here is quite an accolade but we do have um an allotment oh do you on the top of hidden house in regent street it's part of the crown estate there's a wonderful initiative in the west end called wild west end started by arab the um engineering architectural firm and it's about the greening of the west end and if you stand on the roof of some buildings when you look across you can see that things are happening. There are plants on top of roofs and in various places on the ground that, that, where there wouldn't have been green before. I think that's a great and idea. And Edwin, um, who's wonderful, you'll meet him, mm-hmm. uh, who runs our kitchens. Oh, yes, we're going to go around the yes, corner and yes. have a look at the kitchen. In Edwin a um, is absolutely wonderful. He produces sufficient herbs for us in the summer to use in the kitchen and there's an abundance of them they dry them and they freeze them brilliant yeah and he always wins the prizes for the best allotment oh bless and uh, a lot of the london property companies 
actually are doing the same thing, and the four or five main companies across central London actually have a honey-making competition because they're hives on the roofs. Oh, brilliant. And that's in central London, so it's really exciting to be part of that. It is nice to see, like you say, it's probably a little bit harder to be sustainable in the city, but it is possible. Yes. Um, and you were mentioning bees there. We were talking about the difference between buying local or buying seasonal, and we were talking about rapeseed oil earlier, and yes. that's a bit of an issue, isn't At it? At the moment with bees and spraying I think it's improving Mm -hmm. but because rapeseed oil is local everyone's Mm -hmm. been pushing it for me there's quite nothing nothing quite like olive oil (laughs) we do buy rapeseed oil we have to buy rapeseed oil that doesn't have an an anti-foaming agent in it it's been quite hard to find that Mm -hmm. that doesn't come in a plastic bottle and that doesn't have an anti-foaming agent so we buy it in huge tins we have a delivery every few months. Wow. So we're very careful about that because we won't use anything that's chemicaled in the food we use either. Yeah. It's got to be pure food. No mm-hmm. additives, no preservatives. It's absolute blanket rule. There's no exception to that. So we do use rapeseed oil, but in the main, we use olive oil. And um, we feel if it comes from Europe, mm-hmm. it's well produced, it's extra virgin, we're an island couldn't use lemons you couldn't use oranges exactly we, yeah what would we eat we exactly. just have potatoes so we buy it from europe mm-hmm. we wouldn't buy it from argentina or peru mm-hmm. or whatever we really keep it local yeah and i think you can't feel guilty either um i don't think if you have to limit yourself to only eating locally all the time i think that's unreal yeah. you've got to eat as locally as you can for the majority of the time mm. and the odd bits that you want that are imported are absolutely fine. Not flown in by air, yeah. but, you know, fish, meat, all that sort of thing, eggs, all the uh, basic things that we eat are always local. Mm. But the other stuff that you want that are sort of the little treats... I think you're fine to eat that way. And like we were saying, if someone's used to eating meat all the time, going cold turkey and not eating meat feels like a punishment. Mm. So if you can do the best you can... I think what puts people off sustainability mm-hmm. is the feeling that it's like it's a holy grail in a way. Mm. It's not. It's just a way of changing slowly and just doing what you can do slowly as you can to just help contribute to this change that we want to make. Um, when everyone told us years ago, our local authorities, that we had to recycle, yes. we all thought we can never do it until they started going through people's bins and finding them. And all of a sudden, we could all recycle. <laughs> it was rather like the 5p bag mm. uh, charge. That was dramatic. And I feel that it's up to government, actually, to take the initiative and start saying, this is what you must or mustn't do, and teaching us. Mm. Because if you do that... It'll become part of what we do automatically. Exactly. And like you, know? you say, you were saying you grew up in an era without plastic and we're sitting here in front mm. of some of the documents you've been looking at mm. to try and change the recycling bins mm. in the school. It's really difficult. Yes, yes. We need a blanket decision well, of recycling absolutely. in Absolutely. In the school, we've got a lot of bins and we recycle. I mean, we actually now use uh, gloves because we have to use disposable gloves and touching food sometimes. Mm. So um, we use recyclable gloves. Oh, wow. And they're made out of corn. Oh, corn, yes. Corn yeah, cornstarch, yes. Corn I starch. did not know you could buy. Show, yes, and we recycle wow. those. Um, the tops that you pull off like strawberry uh, 
the top of a plastic with strawberries if you've bought it. Those can be recycled. Wow. So we have one bin that's recyclable plastic. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, our oil's recycled, our coffee grounds are recycled, wow. our food waste is recycled. But um, at the moment, we're trying to get some bins onto the streets in Westminster if we can. Yes, this is a plan with First Mile, isn't it, yes, that, we, uh, yes, yeah, that yes. you're working on, which so is amazing. So we're hoping that that'll come to fruition. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Um, what do you think is the thing at the cookery school that people are most surprised to learn? Is there one even? At, yes. I think they're very surprised to learn that we use good energy. It costs a bit more, but all our electricity is wind powered energy that we pay for. Yes, Good Energy have been on the podcast as well, Julia oh, Davenport. Oh, they're fabulous, they're aren't really they? Good. And they actually, prov- they are the provider of lots of other, e- you know, green mm. energy providers that you Around, might see. No, and the other thing that's great is they offset things in a third world by running projects. Mm. And they ask you if you're a Good Energy user to help them decide where the money is spent. Yeah. Um, and they're doing really great offset projects. Mm. Yeah, they're fabulous. And the other thing people are surprised by is that we don't use any plastic and we haven't used it for years and years at all. That's amazing because you'd think like there might be a little bit of cling film somewhere. No, we don't use cling film at all. We'll cover things with plates. And if you said, what was my favourite plastic? (laughs) It would be that we use a lot of Pyrex containers or glass containers, similar to Pyrex, with very heavy-duty plastics on them. Yes, those lids, right? Over, lids, yeah. over and over and over. We've had them for years and years. We're My experimenting. Mm. Yeah, we're experimenting with experimenting with silicon mm. at the moment. And we've got some bags in the freezer that silicon reusable bags. Wow. I think that's going to be a way that people are going to have to go. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you preempted my question. I was going to ask you about your fave plastic items, and we always ask our guests. That's a great one. Um, just to finish up then, uh, yeah. your environmental hero, please. My environmental hero, I actually think would be my daughter, Catherine, because she set me on this path, and she has a huge amount of integrity when it comes to what she eats and the way she lives. Mm. She won't drive a, use a car because she says she doesn't need one really and she can use public transport. She goes much further than I would consider going <laughs> and I really do have to take my hat off to her. Oh, bless. Because she lives what she says you ought to be doing. Yeah, and uh, yeah, so she's been the one ever since she asked you to buy a bit more of organic meat. Yes, yes, and that's since she was an adolescent. Wow. She's just turned 50, so it's a lifetime of living that way. <laughs> Oh, Rosalind, thank you so much for joining me on the Age of Plastic podcast. And thank you so much for speaking to me. It's been an utter joy finding people that are like-minded. It's been so it's nice chatting wonderful. to you. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> Can't wait to go and look at the kitchen now, yes, so we'll head around the corner. Have a look at it. Thank you, thank and thank you for the biscuits. <laughs> Sorry to leave that praise at the end there. It was so nice talking to Rosalind. I think you can probably gather that from our chat. Not only am I inspired to book a cookery class as a Christmas gift, but also if she can run a professional kitchen, plastic-free, I feel like there still must be more I can do in my own kitchen. Also, she gave me a load of freshly baked cookies, which I think always helps. Note to any future guests. I have got some behind-the-scenes photos and videos from her kitchen. I will share those on the Age of Plastic podcast Instagram in the stories if you would like to see those. 
The cookery school have classes for adults, for teens. They do things like knife skills, they've got professional courses so you can get yourself working in a real-life kitchen. And even corporate classes as well. There's things from gut health to food waste, classes on croissants to sushi. So if you've been tasked with sorting out the work team bonding or the Christmas events this year, check them out. You can sign up to their mailing list as well at cookeryschool.co.uk and you'll get 10% discount off your first class. And I hope you don't find this episode too preachy. I just like making food. Honestly, if I had to cook for myself, I would probably live on eggs on toast. But I do love cooking for others. I love cooking from scratch. It's what we do most at home. And I honestly just think it's good for the soul. But I know food can be a thing for people. And I just want you to know, I hope you feel included if you're maybe not the best cook in the world. I don't want this or any episode to be preachy. On to today's eco life hack. Hopefully, you use public transport as much as humanly possible, but sometimes you just gotta call a cab. As party season approaches, I've been thinking about trying to use more hybrid and electric cars. If you're calling up a cab company, maybe just ask if they've got any electric. See if the particular app you use if you're in a city allows you to choose a hybrid or an eco electric car. I know that there is a company called the Electric Taxi. Uh, .co.uk is their website. They have made a totally electric car, a hackney cab no less, which is going to be on London's roads soon. Next time on the podcast, hear from the brewers making beer out of waste bread and even waste Halloween pumpkins, as I'll be joined by Louisa Zane from Toast Ale. Until then, I'm off to do some baking and rid my kitchen of any cellophane wrap. If Rosalind can do it, so can I. I'll see you next time on the Age of Plastic podcast. Thank you.